Welcome to the Soccer Metrics Podcast, a discussion and interview series with leading names in the soccer analytics world. Here's your host, the founder of Soccer Metrics, Howard Hamilton. Welcome to episode number one of the Soccer Metrics Podcast, recorded on the 10th of October, 2013. This is the first of what we hope is a series of interviews with leading figures in football analytics from around the world, but will broaden the scope to football business and sports analytics in general. For this episode, we are live from London at the Leaders Sports Summit in 2013, and we are joined by Alberto Gutierrez of Colo Colo, one of the major football clubs in Chile. Alberto, congratulations on being first, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Tell us a little bit about your current role with Colo Colo. Uh, well, currently I'm working in charge of the academy of the club. Uh, basically, what uh, the people from the club asked me to do is to reorganize the academy in order to find and develop the, all the talents that we have back in Chile in order to put them on the first, on the first team. Prior to that, uh, given my, <clears throat> my studies that I had here in, in England, I kind of uh, tied try to implement some sort of a performance analysis area because it is something that it's it's never has been done in Chile before. So basically my first my first role was to implement some system for performance analysis. Once it was set down, set it was set up, then I changed my role into the academy trying to reorganize it and because of the uh, strategic um, approach that the club has for the academy they wanted me to lead that process. What motivated your interest in performance analysis? Uh, prior coming to England, I've never heard about it. So one of the first things that really called my attention when I was here, uh, I was studying at Liverpool. So every time that we went to a club, to a football club, or any time that a football club went to give us a lecture, they were talking about performance analysis. Uh, and then I started to look at it, and I found a lot of uh, journals, books, uh, research on the subject. And it really caught my attention because it's like it is something that it's absolutely new in, when it comes to Chile and South America. Uh, and it caught my attention because normally when it comes to scouting players, the system to do it and to evaluate how to bring a player into the club, it's pretty much gut guessing in South America. So here you find, I found some sort of a system and a different approach to evaluate a player. So, and I understand that you can do a lot of research on a player and the only truth will be his performance on the pitch. You will never guess prior to that what's going to happen. The only thing you can do is to diminish the risk. So for me, what it was really interesting was to find a way to diminish that risk because you invest a lot of money on transfers and you cannot give that luxury of spending all that money and then nothing happens with this performance on the pitch. So finding that way to assess that issue and how to diminish those risks, I think it was really important for me. Okay. Um, so was that what you gained from the experience or did you gain a lot more from being in the UK and being exposed to performance analysis? Yeah, as you said, I mean, it was really interesting to see the people talking about these this, this aspects, but not only the way they were talking, but also the tools they were implementing and using. So when it comes to some softwares and technologies applied for it, it was really interesting because it, back in South America, no one uses them. 
So for example, uh, Prozone, Amisco, Opta, those type of things, uh, you will never see it over there. So now they're trying to, to use those type of tools. But the thing is, uh, we're in the first steps of that deep type of development. So it's mostly done, if we can say manually, but it's not only, but it's not because there's uh, a conviction about how to do it. It's only because some people has the conviction to do it. So normally what happens, and especially in Chile, uh, most probably the guy who knows how to do it the best and showed the way was Marcelo Bielsa. So if someone who worked with him knows how to do it manually. So, but the thing is, and this is what most important for me, it's like you need to have a system. Even if you use it just the old fashioned, just watching videos like during the entire day or you save time by using some software, it doesn't matter. For me, the most important thing is have a system in place, have some methodology and to be absolutely clear of what we're looking for a player when we're scouting a player and what is what we need to uh, look at when we are analyzing the position and when we're analyzing our own team. I think you make a really valuable point where it's it's so common you know, as as football analytics becomes more widely known for teams or organizations to say, hey, let's go out and collect all these data on players. Let's play money ball in, in quotes. And people collect a lot of data and really don't know what to do with them. And I think it's a lot more important to come up with a plan, come up with an objective of of what you're trying to accomplish, what problem are you trying to solve, and then do everything within that framework. And I think you make a really good point on that. I think you're absolutely right when, when you talk about this moneyball money issue. Uh, there's a lot of talk about it in terms of if some people read about the book and the system, then they will come back and say, you know what, we need to do this. Of course we need to do that. But how? And that's a big question. Because football is completely different from baseball. And I think people who have been working at the moneyball uh, aspects of the game, they will tell you that, you know what, it's completely different because it's, it's, it's in constant movement. So it's really hard to, to define uh, some correlations between the different actions. But I think what is really important, more than what type of data you can collect, is to see the trends. To see, for example, uh, how's the performance of the player in the last couple of years, or what he's been doing. But as you said, I think it's, most, it's more important to have a plan and to have a clear vision of what is it what we need from this area. So more than just collecting data, which is absolutely important, it's to define certain rules. For example, uh, for us, and I can give you a very ex good example, it's really important, given the fact that we're a big team back in Chile, we have a huge pressure on winning. So for us, it's not good to have a player who's going to stay on the bench because we need someone who instantly can play. So for example, and this is a very simple statistics, we need someone who at least has played 70% of the minutes last season because he is a guy who's used to be on the starting lineup. So when you're looking at those kind of things, it's something that you need to look at. So what happened before to that, it's like, and it's, and I can guess that happens in a lot of clubs, sometimes the board members, they just look at one game, most probably it is a game that some team played against us, 
And there was a guy who had a very fantastic performance at that game. And he said, we need that guy. But then when you ask him, and then you say, you know what? The season has 25 games. He only played one good game. The rest of the 24 games were absolutely rubbish. Why? So when I was saying that you need to have a plan and a clear vision of what to do and what type of information you're looking for, it's that, those kind of things. Just to define some sort of profiles of the things that you're looking at at some player. Yeah, that's really great. So let's take a, a little bit of a step back. And for the benefit of our listeners who may not keep up with Colo Colo or Chilean football, could you give a brief historical uh, lesson on Colo Colo and its role in Chilean football history? Well, basically, Colo Colo is the biggest football club in back in Chile. More, half of the country supports the club. Uh, it's the club that, who has more trophies. We won the league 29 times. The second biggest team that has won more league titles has 13 league titles. We are the only team who has won the Libertadores Cup, which is like the Champions League of South America. Uh, we have the, we have uh, one of the greatest, biggest stadiums in the country with capacity for 45,000 people. Uh, it's the people's club, given the fact that we are the most supported one. Well, most of the people supports the club. People from all ages, from all different social cultures, uh, socioeconomic differences. Um, and it's a club that people tend to say, and there's a common phrase saying that Colo Colo is Chile and Chile is Colo Colo. So, and, and what is really important for, 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 a, some, for someone who wants to understand how big is Colo Colo back in Chile, uh, the type of exposure that the president of the club has is second to the president of the country. So if you're president of Colo Colo, you will have the same type of exposure as the president of the country. So it is huge. So there's a huge responsibility, not only on the sporting aspects, but also in the social aspects of the game. How is professional football in Chile organized? Uh, we have two professional uh, tiers, uh, which is really Interesting, one, one, one thing is really interesting. We have 18 clubs in the first division and 16 clubs in the second division. So it's quite the opposite of what it tends to be, this pyramid system in, in the entire world. In a couple of years time, it, that's going to be changed. It's going to be 16 and 16, 16 teams on, on, each, on each tier. Uh, sadly, we are a small country. So basically, the, all the type of support, it's split in two teams because all it's 50% supports Colo Colo, 25% supports the other team, and then 11% the third one. So you can imagine that it's it's pretty much like the, the Scottish League. And uh, what it's also interesting to see is like <clears throat> we have a system over there that it's pretty. We have two league titles on on, on on during the year, and perhaps the most particular aspect of it, it's the TV sharing money. Uh, unlike the rest of the leagues, the clubs owns the TV channel that broadcasts the the games. So it's basically we are we owners of the of the TV channels. Canal de Football in Chile. Hmm? Canal de Football in Chile. CDF. Yes, that's the CDF, the Canal del Football. So basically, what the money that the club receives are the profits of that canal, of the of that channel. For this year, the profits were $50 million. So in the cup, the next years, they were 
the projections are going up till 80, 90 million dollars. It seems to me that's actually a pretty good um, TV contract for a country of that size. I know the, the, I think Chile has, I think the third or fourth economy in South America. Is that right? Well, we do have a strong economy. Uh, well, we're this, yeah, the third one. Well, the first ones will be Brazil and uh, and Argentina. Uh, you have to imagine that we are 17 million people, so it's not a big country, but we do have a very uh, strong economy. It's very stable. Uh, I think what the, the, one of the most important things that people really love about Chile, and when it comes to the footballers, is like we don't tend to pay too much money, but we do pay. So it's a safe country to live at in terms of the economic development and also in terms of the social development for yourself and your family. Uh, it's interesting you were talking about the dominance of the, I guess, the Santiago-based clubs because one thing that struck me when I started following Chilean football you know, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, was that it's not necessarily dominated by Santiago clubs from time to time. I, I remember Cobreloa in the north being successful in the 2000s when Nelson Acosta was there and, and then Everton. It's, it's kind of funny that we're here in Britain and we're, we're talking about Everton and uh, Vina del Mar and they won the championship a few years ago. I think there's a club called Huachepato uh, who also won. So, you know, there are small regional clubs that tend to be, you know, that can win championships. Uh, what causes or what caused those successes by the regional clubs? I think one of the most important things is like the type of the league that we have. Uh, given the fact that we have two league, sorry, two championships during the year, it gives you the chance that if you have a very good strike of winning, of winning games, you'll be on the top of the league. So if you win three or four games in a row, you'll be contenders for the league title. So that gives a lot of confidence for the team. I think that the other part that's really important, it's the entire process of how Chilean football, it's been looked at on the other leagues. And what I mean by this, by this is like, every time a good player comes out, he's going to leave. So it's really hard to retain top quality players because it's normal. Clubs from Europe will take them out. And what happens with that, it tends to happen. It's like the big clubs, it's really hard for them to re to then find a good replacement. So basically what happens is like the distances between big clubs and the regional clubs diminishes. So it's more even the league. So now, as I said, if you have a good strike of winning games, you have a pretty good chance to win the league title. Uh, but what happens now, for example, you were mentioning Cotaloa. Cotaloa had a very, uh, they were very big in the 80s. They won everything on, during the 80s. They reached two times in a row, the final of the Libertadores Cup. Uh, then they had another good winning season in 2003 with Nelson Acosta. Then you had Everton with Nelson Acosta as well. Now last year, the champions of the, of the country were Huachipato and Unión Española. So you tend to see very good developments of some clubs. The thing is, how can you make, that, make them last for a few seasons? So for example, what we're seeing right now that Huachipato, who, who, who won the league, um, in the second semester of the last year, now it's on the bottom of the league. They couldn't hold the best players, they couldn't retain their best players, so now they're struggling to find good replacements and trying to get on top of the league again. So you may reach easily to the top, but then easily you, can, you may go down to the bottom. So it's a really complicated situation for them as well because it gives you a huge amount of uh, 
pressure from the fans because now fans, for example, from Guatibato are saying, hey, we won the league. We want to be there again. And their stories like you've, you've only won the league twice. So you're not used to have a winning team. It's only once in a while that you, have, you, you win. But fans nowadays are more used to it and then demand not only having a good team, but they, need, they want to win. I guess um, one thing that I've noticed with um, with the smaller regional clubs or neighborhood clubs winning uh, league titles in countries like, say, Argentina, is that it's closely accompanied by the decline in the major clubs like River Plate, which got relegated um, two, two seasons ago, Independiente, which got relegated last year. Boca Juniors isn't doing very well in this championship. Uh, Racing hasn't been doing well for, for years. Um, and the decline of the major powers has given space to the smaller neighborhood teams to win championships, which has never happened before in a split season, uh, in a split season format. Um, has that happened in Chile? It, have clubs like Universidad de Chile or um, or Colo Colo or um, other uh, Universidad Católica declined? And, you know, that has that given space to the uh, to the regional clubs? Uh, I think it's yes and no. Uh, I think you're absolutely right when, it, when when you're discussing and you were explaining the situation in Argentina. I think that it's absolutely right. What we've seen in Chile, it's like I think that in a couple of years' time we, we may have that situation, uh, but not because the, the the big clubs can decline to that point of getting relegated, but to the point of not having uh, the means to replace the top quality players. And I'm not talking about money, I'm just talking about the availability of top quality players. Uh, um, when it comes to Chile in the last years, uh, we haven't had a good performance. Colo Colo haven't won the league in, since 2009. But during these years, we, we always reach semifinals. Uh, but the thing is, for example, when you say Chile had their most successful team in their, in their entire history just a couple of years ago. So I think that what happened was that while, while Catolica Lao had very good performances in the last years and Colo Colo didn't have them, most probably, yeah, that, that space left by Colo Colo was taken by these regional clubs. But I think, as I said before, the most important question for them, it's like, how can we maintain this type of performances in time? Because we can have a very good semester, but the big question is, what about the next one? Uh, do the professional leagues in Chile have that averaging system like Argentina to decide who goes down or up, or do they take a different approach or a traditional approach? Uh, not now, but in a couple of seasons times, yes, we will have it. That's unfortunate, actually, because I prefer I prefer teams going down or going up based, or, well, teams going down based on performance in that season. Um, but I guess the, the footballing authorities in Chile have a different perspective. Uh, well, it's basically, and let me explain it, it it's because in a couple of seasons times, we need to define that two, four teams will get relegated and only two will get promoted because we need to put the, the both leagues even. So what was decided was that just trying to make it more fair and not so unfair with just one season, it's only because of that situation. So after that, normally it's 
the club with the, le the lesser points during the entire season goes back to the uh, gets it gets relegated. Okay, that's that's very different. I guess I can understand it that way. But what's the main argument for having a split season championship? It seems that it's been a virus that spread from Argentina and ha haven't been able to stop it. I was hoping that people would follow Brazil's example of having a single of having a single national championship, um, but that hasn't quite that hasn't quite happened throughout South America. So why why split season championship? Well, it's true. Sometimes there's a lot of times that uh, trying to give a boost for the league and the, for the national team performances and trying to make it even better. Uh, Chilean league tried for a long time just to implement the same things that other leagues that are supposed to be better than us were doing. So they were saying that, well, if Argentina does this, it's because it's better, because they are a big name in, in, in world football. Uh, <clears throat> but if you put that argument aside, I think one of the most important things would be money. Uh, if the type of uh, dead weekends, if you have a normal league running from just one season, uh, you have a lot of weekends out of it. So given the system that it's pay-per-view, basically, so you have to monthly subscribe to, the, to this channel, which broadcasts the games, when you have two league, do you have two league titles during the year? You have more weekends available, so it's basically you don't have so many dead weekends. So there's an economic reason behind that. So at some point, that was the main reason why not only we had two league titles but also playoffs because you have more weekends to play. Uh, now we don't have more playoffs trying to make it the, the calendars because now the international calendars, it's, it's so huge that there's no uh, more uh, weekends to, to play. But it's basically because of that. It's, 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 it's all about how we can have more money out of the, uh, out of the league. Okay. Yeah, I, I imagine that's a challenge in an 18 and seem to be a 16-team league because if you play a double round robin, you have 30 match days. And then um, the... Also, the football calendar, does it follow a European calendar or does it follow a March to, two, March to December calendar? For this season, we changed it. Now we follow the European calendar. All right. So, so now we're going to talk about analytics. And to what extent are football analytics used at Colo Colo and in Chilean football in general? And I, I don't expect you to give away any... Any secrets there being done at Colo Colo, but I guess to what extent are they used there? Uh, it's pretty much basic, and and I can talk about the the, the reality of Colo Colo because I can I, I I'm pretty sure that only a couple of clubs they have some sort of a system in place to do some sort of analytics. Uh, when it comes to our situation, it's basically uh, we have a group of people of anal analysts watching every single game of the league and then they do a report of that so at the same time they watch every single league of the Italian, of the Italian league and they also watch every single game of the Argentina league Uruguayan league Paraguayan league and they tend to define the best players of those of those leagues um, <clears throat> after a month they define the the team of the month so when it, when 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 the club needs to address certain positions for transfers, 
we have those teams on place. And those are the names that we, we, we've been looking at trying to sign. Of course, there's, some, there's money issues because it naturally tends to, to focus your attention on the best players. But then the reality is like those best players will go to Europe. So when it comes to scouting, that's how they do it. When it comes to the opposition analysis and our own analysis, uh, for example, if the game is played on a Saturday, 4 o'clock, 4 p.m., Monday, 9 a.m., manager and sporting director of the club will have an entire report of the best and the worst uh, moves of the, of, the, of the team during that game. They will have, we have a certain template of how the things that should be put on, the, uh, on, on that report. So it's basically the day after you have an a complete report, not only written but also with images of, of that game. And it's the same when it comes to the opposition on Thursdays. It's a complete report. It's given to the managing team of the, the next, the next uh, rivals. What do, we, what do we use to do all this work? Basically, Wisecout. Wisecout is a really good tool. It's a fantastic tool. Uh, when we found out about Wisecout, we, we said, you know what? Forget the agents and forget their videos. Because, OK, bring me whatever you want to bring me. Doesn't matter. I will check the videos by myself. Uh, we had ProZone, but we couldn't get too much uh, advantages of the system because we didn't know how to properly use it. So, and it's something that we discussed with ProZone alone. They said, you know what, yeah, it is a problem that we left you alone with the system. We didn't have people on, on the place to help you to do it because when I was talking to the clubs over here, it's like ProZone has one guy working with them. So I think that in, in the near future, we, we may see that we have the system again. We have the cameras. We have everything. Uh, and also, I think it's really important to the way this counting is done, it's basically looking at not only the performances of the players, but also looking at the, the positions the players are, are using. So if you want to see a position that a player played, we basically have all the pitches with the, with the figures of the player, watching the, his position. So you have a huge folder of all the games that a guy played, so you know exactly where, what type of positions he can, he can play. What makes the reach of Alex challenging South America? Uh, I think that the biggest one would be, given the fact that now the talent is scarce, not because the, you don't, we don't have talent, it's because the talent will not stay more than six months in the, in, in the region. You need to find a way to assess the new talent and how to find the new talent for the first teams. Uh, it's really complicated, the situation, because given the fact that now we become, it's like we become, become like harvest farms of players for Europe. So 10 years ago, you could have a player staying in, in South America for four years, three years. So that's fine, no problems at all. But now the situation is like one player makes his debut, he has a very good performances, and he's going to live in six months. So I think that's the biggest challenge in terms of how we can find a system that help us to replace those top quality players. It seems that um that kind of situation puts even more pressure on the youth academies because you really have to make sure that your processes are solid so that you're developing 
so that you're developing that talent far into the future. So if you make a mistake at age, you know, 14, 15, or 16, it could affect your club, you know, for years down the road. Is that, is that correct? Is that accurate? I think you're absolutely right. I'm absolutely 100% convinced that the top quality players, you will find it in your academy. You won't find them anywhere. I mean, you will find players, but you can't pay for them. That's the reality, unless you have $10 million or 5 million euros to, to, to play for a, big, for a quality player. So uh, we were having some conversation before, before the podcast interview, and I had mentioned that I follow South American football quite a bit. And it seems to me that South American players are more willing to play young players than, say, North American or European clubs because they don't have much of a choice. And it seems to be especially true if a team gets relegated. They have to, you know, they lose a lot of income right off the top. And a lot of those players who were playing at that higher level end up leaving for our teams and then you have to turn to your academy players um is is that about right um do teams in south america are teams in south america more inclined to play younger players than european or um north american teams or even asian teams i think everything will depend on the type of pressure that the club has uh when it comes to the pressure for winning league titles, it's really complicated to give that responsibility for a young lad because normally the coach will say, you know what, if I don't win, I get sacked. So I'm going to trust more on, on, on more experienced players than, rather than a new one. Uh, and when it comes to the teams that will get relegated, it's also the same situation. So, But in a certain way, yes, uh, given the fact that it's, it's really hard to replace players. You tend to use more academy players. When it comes to Colo Colo, we have a situation where the pressure to win the league title is so high that it's really complicated for one coach coming in and saying, you know what, I'm going to give the chance for an 18-year-old kid rather than relying that, uh, relying that confidence on a guy with, I don't know, with more experience on the league. We're in the middle of that battle, that transition of, okay, who has to play? Uh, what are the type of chances that we're going to give young players to play? But it's true. It tends to have more, you should see more spaces for this type of players. And I think where it's, 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 it's more a reality, it's, it's, it's in Argentina. So you will see a lot of 18-year-old players playing on, on the first teams. When it comes to, to, to Chile, it, it's a little bit harder. But I think that in a couple of years' time, we will, we will definitely see that situation. Uh, and I don't know if it's a good or bad situation, honestly, because for one, on, the one, on, the, on, the, on the one hand, it's like you are giving them the chance to develop themselves. But on the other hand, it's like having a team of only 18-year-old kids, it's, it's complicated. It's a very high-pressure environment. And you know, I've seen that firsthand observing football in Argentina. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't care if you've been playing, you know, football, you know, with the club and playing reserve matches for a while. When you're playing in a situation where you have to get points in order to avoid relegation, um, and you know, you're playing in a very high pressure environment where your own fans are putting pressure on you and the opposition is putting pressure on you as well. Um, 
you know, I, I see the nerves that those players go through. And, you know, teams play in a very different way, um, you know, when they're in those high-pressure environments as opposed to, um, you know, environments that aren't quite like that. And you even see that with teams that are playing for a championship. Um, even teams that are playing for a championship that have never been in that situation before, they get a lot more nervous than than a team that's a lot more experienced. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, the thing is, we tend to discuss internally that the best time for a player from the academy to play for the first team is when the team is winning. Because there's no, I mean, there's pressure, but it's not that type of pressure. Because if the team is winning, the team is performing well, it's everything's easier for that player. But when the team is not winning, and you put that player on the on, on the on the on the first team on the pitch, their responsibility is so high that if he's so inexperienced, it's like, will it kill him as a player? The situation. So it's a really complicated uh, aspect of the game because at some point you need to balance that. Okay, I'm going to protect him, but for how long? He needs to play. And of course, there are those situations where a club doesn't have a choice. You have to turn to your academy players because there's no one left. And I, I think you're absolutely right. That that's a really that's a really tricky situation because if if an academy player in, or say, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old player is in that situation where you have to win the match or your team goes down and you know, you're not able to do it. That's, that's really psychologically damaging. And I've seen the effect on that, you know, on, on players at, at certain clubs. Um, but it's uh, the reality, you know, in countries like, you know, Argentina, I guess maybe, you know, maybe Colombia and some other places, is that, you know, those, you know, those players don't have a choice. Well, for example, there's, uh, in 2002, the club went in bankruptcy. Colo Colo went bankrupt. Uh, there was no money at all. And the only players available at that time were a couple of legends who were in the last days of their, of their career. And the rest of the team were all the academy players that were on loan. So, and given the fact that we didn't have any money, that was the team. 20-year-old lads with a couple of experienced players, and that was it. What happened? They won the league title. So people remember sometimes the teams that are most more fondly remembered, it's that one. It's because, you know what, we won it in the bankruptcy year just with academy lads. So it was a, a fantastic achievement. But the thing is, can we repeat that? It was a really special situation because the support of the fans was absolutely fantastic. They completely full stadium, every single game, full stadium. Uh, and the thing was, and I remember because I was there as a fan, there, that the spirit of amongst all the people at the stadium was, you know what, these are our kids. This is the people from our academy. Uh, we don't have another choice. We're in a very stressful situation. We, the only thing that we can do is to support. We never booed any single player. We never complained about anything. So that type of situation is really hard to find again because now all the fans wants to win. So finding that like very positive spirit towards the team, it was absolutely fantastic. But it's, it's really hard to recreate it again. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just one of those galvanizing 
uh, moments where everyone just, you know, closes ranks and say, you know what, we're going to support this team. You know, it's our it's our team, and that's something. It's something that's really really special, and I think you only find that in in football. I think that's I think it's really part of the appeal of football to so many people around the world. I think that's one of the things that I mean. You can find those type of examples everywhere, and, and I think that's the most important thing of football. I mean, for someone who has been a fan for a really long time, and like me, it's like those be the best memories of the football. It's like okay, in the hard times or even in the good times, uh, the memories that you have with football, with your friends, your family, and that you remember the game, and then you remember with I was there with this friend or with this another relative. Those type of memories, it's 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 the best of the football. So I, I remember the first time that I saw Colo Colo players when I was a really young kid, and I never forget about that moment. And the thing is, now that I'm working at the club, I'm working with those guys that work at the club. And I remember that I told them, you know what? The first time that I saw you, I was, I had 11 years old, and I I greeted you, and you were going onto the pitch. Of course, you don't remember me, but I do remember that moment. And it's a fantastic situation where you find yourself working alongside your boy heroes. So what's the typical trajectory from youth recruit to first team member? What's the typical trajectory from youth recruit to first team member? The typical trajectory? The ah, career okay. path. Uh, the career path, it's um, now what we're doing because we have from the under 17s, under 19s, and then we have the first team. We tend to create a reserves team. We create the reserves team that it's competing on some professional tier. So basically what we have right now, it's like the under 19s, they are playing in two competitions at the same times. The competitions for the academy with the rest of the academies on the country and some professional teams. Uh, for us, it's a way to see them and gain more experience for some situations that are not stressful. So for example, uh, they tend to play against teams that are fighting for getting promoted to the second division uh, in stadiums with 8,000 people that it's, they're going to get abused, they're going to get kicked. I mean, it's like a war because it's like we still are the big team going over there. So that type of experience for them is really important. Because it's like it gives them like some sort of preparation for what they will find in the first team. So it's normally what we tend to see is that if he's performing well in the under 17s and 19s, he's gonna play in that team. And if he's playing well, definitely he will have a chance in the first team. And the other thing that we did was it's really complicated to find a balance uh, and a good communication between the first team and the academy. So one of the things that we did was. And this is something that we requested to the sporting director of the club was that every single time that a new coach came to the club, inside his coaching staff, he had to have someone from the academy. So what happened now that luckily, uh, the coach that we hired, he didn't, he didn't have any coaching staff. So his entire coaching staff comes from the academy. So it's really simple and it's really easier for us to, to talk to them to see, okay, who's going to be the next kid who will have his chance over there. And it's because, and it's a, it's a normal situation for everybody. It's like every general go to the war with his own soldiers. So academy coaches, his soldiers are the academy players. So they will give them a chance. And we've seen that they're giving them the chance to play 20 minutes. Sometimes they are even in the starting lineup. 
So they are getting exposure to the game, so which is really fantastic. So uh, I think that the most important things are that reserves team and also having people from the academy on the coaching staff. Okay. Um, this is the Soccer Metrics podcast, and I'm joined by Alberto Gutierrez of Colo Colo. Alberto, I'd like to ask you about a very interesting conference that took place in Buenos Aires a couple of months ago called Conexión Fútbol. You attended the conference, correct? Yeah, I was there. Tell us about the conference, its objectives, and who attended, and so forth. Uh, mainly the objectives of the conference was the first time that it was done. Uh, and the idea was to have a place where football people from South America can gather together to discuss and to know the experiences from, from different people, from different clubs, from different, uh, from different countries. So it was not only about uh, all-pitch issues, it was also about commercial issues, psychological issues, uh, marketing uh, trends of the game. So I think it was a very nice uh, opportunity to get together to discuss some things. And, and it's like, like in Europe or in the States where you have several conferences of this type. It was the first experience trying to give a moment to get together and to know the experiences from other people. Um, what was your role at the conference? I understand that you gave a talk there. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I was talking about the uh, basically what I did was to talk about the sports management of a football club. So uh, it was focused on the story of Colo Colo in the last years in terms of its management, what we've done right and what we've done wrong. I mean, I was pretty honest on saying, and, and it was something that it really amazed and surprised the people saying, you know what, you were very honest saying that we've made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, it's true. It's, you make mistakes, and you have to be very honest on, on, on that. And also given the uh, explaining the way that the academy works. So it was, uh, it was a way to show the type of work that we're doing right now. Um, I think you mentioned the main points of your talk. So, what did you take away from the conference? Uh, were there any common themes among the speakers? I think one of the most important things was to plan, to have an idea of what you want to do, regardless of, because we have people talking about the psychology for the first teams, people from marketing aspects, but if you can find some uh, common words were preparation, planification, uh, long-term vision. Uh, I think that it's what it's most important right nowadays in football. It's like you tend to be eaten by the short-term vision, uh, the Sunday result. So sometimes you can't sit down and look on what's going to happen in six months' time, one year time. Uh, and I think that was one of the most important things of the conference. It's that sit down plan what you want to do, and, and do it. Were clubs or federations willing to share best practices on their operations, or were they keeping things closer to, closer to their vest and not divulging anything? Was there a real sharing going on? It was an absolutely real sharing co conference. I mean, for example, I showed everything that we do. Uh, and I, when I'm talking about everything that we do, I showed the, uh, the planification of one-week uh, training system. So when it comes to other clubs, they were explaining their entire marketing strategies. Uh, so, I mean, actually, it was a very 
good moment because you saw what they are doing. Uh, there was no selfish at all. Uh, people were given the the things that they're doing, showing them with no with no no problems at all. So I think, as you say, uh, you get to see the reality of the things that the clubs are doing. Okay. And which countries were represented at that conference? Uh, well, I was from Chile, a lot of people from Argentina, Uruguay, Spain, those countries. Okay. No one from Brazil? Uh, no, 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 I remember that no one from Brazil. I think it was the, I remember that I was talking to the organizers and given the fact that it was the first experience of it, uh, they were trying to rely on people they knew in terms of easy access to them and to be sure that they will be able to come. Yeah. That yeah, actually brings up an interesting question because it seems to me that there's not a huge amount of interaction between um, between Brazilian football authorities and at least Brazilian uh, football directors and directors in the rest of South America. Is, is it a language issue? Is it a difference in culture? Or um, I guess what is it really? Uh, well, it's basically that you have a language barrier. I mean, in the entire South America, everybody speaks Spanish. They are they're only ones who speak Portuguese. But when you sit down with a Brazilian guy and then he speaks slowly, you will understand what he says. Uh, but I think it's a more uh, football rivalry rather than another thing. I mean, between Argentina and Brazil, they can't see each other. <laughs> so, and that's not only to a fan level. So, <laughs> it's really complicated this, the relationship. But I think that in I think that in the in the next in the next uh, editions of this uh, of this conference, we will see somebody from Brazil. I mean, I'm definitely sure. I mean. Uh, I can understand that situation of this rivalry, but that's for the fans, not for the professionals of the game. Okay, so this is the Soccer Metrics podcast, and I'm joined by Alberto Gutierrez of Colo Colo. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, we're at the Leaders Sports Summit at Chelsea Football Club. Um, and Alberto, I know you study in this country, so it must be a thrill to be back here, correct? Yeah, basically brings me back a lot of memories. Uh, well, I lived in Liverpool, I started in Liverpool, but uh, I remember that I spent a long time here too because I was visiting some friends. Uh, but it's basically coming back and see the type of things that the people in England are doing. Uh, and, and then I'm hoping that we can do some of them back in Chile. I know that's a long journey from Chile to the UK. How often are you able to travel here? Uh, luckily, uh, the club is very open to this type of situation, so I've been traveling at least once a year. Okay. Still quite often. <laughs> uh, how's your visit been so far? Yeah, I mean, it's been great. Um, we had the chance to have a very good meetings for the things that we were looking for, to hear some very good uh, conferences, to, to learn about some new experiences. Uh, I think it's been fantastic. In your opinion, are there practices that Chilean football can learn from English football? And if so, which ones? This is a very interesting question because in South America, and especially in Chile, every time they tend to look to the English Premier League or Bundesliga, trying to do this, saying that this is the type of things that we need to do in terms of the organization of the league, or how important is the league, how professional it is, how fantastic stadium they have, etc., etc. 
when I was here, I was my thesis was about how to bring Chilean people into the stadiums. Uh, but the thing is, when I looked at the Premier League, basically what the Premier League is saying is like, come to see me because we are the best league in the world. And they can say that. I mean, we can we can dis be we can discuss it about okay, uh, is it true or not? But they can say it. I mean, it's either La Liga, it's or the Bundesliga, or it's in the English Premier League. So you can say it. It's fine. But we in Chile, we can't say that. We're not the best league in South America. So for me, it was more interesting to see the type of work of the football league has done in terms of how they can position themselves within this um, football panorama. Because while we have a more virtual competition, because in, Santa, in Chile, a kid can turn on the TV and watch these games, here in England, it's not turning on the TV, it's actually going to the games. So, for example, a fan at, of Huddersfield Town has Liverpool and Man United 40 minutes away. So how can you transform that kid as a Huddersfield fan rather than a Liverpool and a Man United fan? So the type of work that the Football League did in terms of position themselves as a gathering point for the family, I think that's what's really important for us. So I took that example and tried to develop some sort of a plan to do to, do, to, to try and to apply it to in Chile. So I think that's the most important thing for me. It's the type of work that the minor leagues are doing to position themselves in spite of this huge my quotation marks monster that it's the Premier League, so they can survive. Yeah. I think you make a really important point or you bring up a really important issue and that um, professional football leagues outside of Europe have two problems. One, you have to draw people to your stadiums to support their local team. And you also have to get them out of the house because your competition isn't necessarily other sports. Obviously in Chile, football is pretty much it. But in America, you have to compete against um, of the other professional sports leagues. You're also competing against the major European leagues uh, for attention. Um, so how do you how you're able to position yourself so that you're a compelling option for football fans to you know come out of the house go to the stadium or even turn on tv watch a match that's a really significant problem and i think it's one that leagues outside of europe uh struggle with at times i think that the most important thing is how to how you do the fan engagement with them uh I think in, in South America sometimes it's easier than in Europe. So, for example, one of one of the things that really amazed me here when I was living here was that getting an autograph from a player was absolutely impossible. Back in South America, it's really simple. I mean, you can go to the training grounds and you see the players, and so you can wait for them, and then you you will get it. So, uh, that type of things, it's 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 easier for 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 a South American club trying to engage with their fans because you can do it. How easy is that really in practice? Because I, I read all sorts of stories about the Barras uh, going to going to training grounds and you know threatening the players you know if they don't perform well. Uh, is it still accessible in, in South America? I think those stories are more about Argentina rather than Chile. I mean, we had some problems in the past, but it's very very occasional. It was something very spot. I th that I can remember, it only happened twice in the entire history of the club. Uh, 
it's not an issue. I mean, you can go to the training ground and, and nothing's going to happen. Um, I was reading an article by Tim Vickery of BBC Sport. I think you know him. He's a reporter who's based in Rio. And he asked Brazilian administrators what Brazilian football could learn from Europe. And all of them replied to a person, nothing, with a huff. And then he asked players who were formerly in Europe the same question, and they all replied to a person, better organization. So would you find a similar type of response among Chilean administrators and players, or, um, or would you get something different? <laughs> Funny story. Uh, no, I think that uh, everybody will say the same thing that the Brazilian player said. I mean, better organization. I think that's the most important thing over here. I mean, everything's perfect. At least what you see. What, what you see on TV, it's absolutely perfect. So, uh, and when you talk to the, to the clubs, the way they are organized, the way they define their job in terms of making the life easier of everybody, not only the, the, the players, but the coaching staff and the admin people, it is fantastic. So if you ask people in Chile, uh, and I'm talking about the, uh, the ministers and everybody, they will say, yeah, there's a lot of things to, to, to learn from because it's, I mean, we're not, we're not the best league in the world, as I said before. And we know that we have a long journey ahead of us trying to make it us better. Okay. So we've been given very strict rules not to divulge specific comments made by the panelists at the conference. So I'm not going to ask you to do the same. But what have been your overall thoughts on the Leader Sports Summit? Uh, I think that it's a very fantastic opportunity, a very good opportunity to get together with the people in, from the industry that that has an influential role on it. Uh, the fact that it's really, my quotation marks again, simple to approach them because you have them over there, and trying to talk with them about any single issue you may have, it's it's I think it's really important. Uh, but at the same time. At some point, you need to have very clear of what is it that you want to see because there's a lot of things going on at the same time. So, as I said before, the most important thing when it comes to managing a football club is to plan what you want to do. If anyone's coming to leaders, just plan ahead of it. What is it that you want to see and who you want to talk to because it's really hard to do it at the same time. And what has been the most valuable aspect of the leaders' conference? It's the networking, by far. I think it's that's the most important thing. I mean, uh, you have the chance to talk to some people that it, it will be absolutely impossible to do it and to reach and to get to their contact details if you, if I, for example, sitting down in Santiago. So, what would you like? What would you most like to see at leaders that you don't see right now? Sometimes I would like to see more uh, examples from the clubs in the way they are working. Uh, sometimes a more specific presentation rather than just a simple conversation. Uh, I would love to see more specific details on the things that they're doing, not only on the academies or recruiting players, but marketing strategies, uh, commercial aspects of the game, um, uh, managing uh, stadium management, those type of topics. All right. Fantastic. Well, that's going to do it for our questions for today. Our guest for this episode of the Soccer Metrics broadcast has been Alberto Gutierrez. 
Alberto, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. No, thanks to you for the opportunity to talk, and it's been a really nice conversation. I've really enjoyed it as well. This is Howard Hamilton of Soccer Metrics Research. Thanks for listening to the Soccer Metrics Podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Soccer Metrics Podcast. The Soccer Metrics Podcast is available for free from iTunes, so you can listen to it again and again. To find the notes for this edition and learn more about our research, services, and other resources, visit the site at soccermetrics.net. You can also find us on Twitter, at Soccermetrics. So until next time, this has been another edition of the Soccer Metrics Podcast.